following audio is from Deering Christian Church. Join us Sunday mornings at either 9 or 10.30 a.m. You know, it's probably something that I should um, have anticipated. It's a phrase I should have expected, anticipated, because I had been on both sides of it already as, as, as a... a a child growing up in a home myself um, in various places throughout my life in various different circumstances. And I should have just known that this phrase would begin rearing itself in our home. And this is the phrase. Tell me, have you ever heard this in your home? That's not fair. That is not fair. Dad, it's not fair. It's not fair. Last week, You help do the dishes on Sunday, it's my chore this week, and you're not helping this week. You know, have you, because because your children keep log sheets on everything you do for the other sibling within the home. If you don't realize that, it might not be, it might not be um, a hard copy log sheet, but I promise you, there's a virtual one up there in their brain. And sometimes it's not the most accurate thing in the world, but they don't know that. Since you probably heard it, it is not fair. It seems to creep into almost every part of our lives. And it's not just in our childhood, it goes well beyond that. Um, and there are times when, when that phrase is there legitimately. And there are other times when it's not there legitimately. And often the way to tell the difference, if, if, you, if you are thinking about saying that phrase, or you're at least thinking it in the back of your mind, a question that we should ask ourselves is this, does this have to do just with me? Does my concern here just have to do with me, or does it have to do with others, with other people? That's a pretty good litmus test for whether or not that not fair is legitimate. But even that is not a perfect formula for fairness legitimacy, okay? That's not fair. Fair can be described as right, just. Proper. If you're going to look at it in, in a term of opposites, it is the opposite of what is wrong. It is the opposite of what is unjust. And as we look at today's passage of Scripture, what we are going to find is this. It's, it's something that Jesus said that was very difficult for the people of his day to hear. It was a difficult saying. And maybe just a question before the question at the end of this message is this. What about today? As we look at this saying, would we still call it a difficult statement today? Now, a little bit of what's taking place. Matthew chapter 20, that's, that's getting close to the end, all right? This is, this is very near the end of Jesus' ministry, his life before the cross. And Jesus, with his crew, is heading directly into a firestorm. They are headed towards Jerusalem. And Jesus He has made it more and more clear what he's heading to. Last week we looked at Jesus making his first, one of his very first statements about he came here to die. Not just to die, he came here to be executed, to be killed by unjust people. By this time he has said this and made this statement and and referred to it a large number of times. People weren't still getting it, but he had said it many times. By this time, Jesus has raised his friend Lazarus back to life. Okay, As I said, we're getting kind of close to the end here. 
as well as this, guys. The Sanhedrin, uh, when I, let me this, maybe this will set up for you a little bit better what Jesus is heading towards and heading towards Jerusalem. The Sanhedrin, those who are in charge, the religious folks, have, they're so fired up that they are planning not only to kill Jesus, you know who else they're planning on killing as well? Lazarus, the guy that Jesus raised back to life. So we can't have that guy walking around. That's just evidence that this Jesus is somebody and not just anybody. So we got to kill him too. Jesus has just recently in our passage responded to Peter's question. We looked at this other heart saying a little while ago where a rich man came to Jesus and said, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said, give up everything, sell everything you have and follow me. The guy walked away sad. We went over that a few weeks ago. Peter followed that statement with this. Well, Jesus, we've given up everything. What, is, what, do, what do we get? We, we walked away from it all. And, and Jesus responds to that with this. Now, we're in Matthew 20, but we're going to read a couple verses before Matthew 20, all right? It'll be Matthew 19, verses 29 and 30. And this is what it says. Jesus speaking, and he says this. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. But then catch verse 30. He says, but many who are first will be last and those who are last will be first. And that leads into what we're looking at today. What we're looking at today isn't just a hard saying, it's a hard parable. Jesus told story. Okay. Now a little bit, I've given you the, the scriptural context of where we're at here, but a little bit of historical context as well. Um, Rome is in charge basically of the known world. Rome is in charge of Palestine, the Holy Land, the area where Jesus is at. Rome is in charge of it all. And Rome had made it very tough on a lot of people. Very tough. There's a lot of speculation today on just how hard it was for the Jewish people in Palestine during Jesus' day. I mean, some say it was incredibly hard. Others, maybe not quite so bad. But everyone agrees that life was tough. There was heavy taxation. All right? Um, Rome had a way of dividing the people in nations so that those people, a divided people amongst themselves, it's very unlikely they're going to unite and rebel against Rome. So they had a way of dividing these regions and dividing these smaller nations, if you will. And they did this by political and economic favoring, all right? And they would favor the traitors, those who were loyal to them. We would know them from scripture as tax collectors or some of those, but also there were politicians as well. And the result of all of this was that there were a lot of subsistent, subsistent workers, meaning this, they don't have a job, they don't have a paycheck coming two weeks from now or a month from now, no. They work during the day, they take home money from that day, and therefore their family will eat that night. That's subsistence life and living. And that is a lot like what people were doing in Jesus in his day. There were certain times of the year where there was a lot of work to be had. There were various harvests that would take place. And our passage today focuses on a particular type of harvest, a harvest of a vineyard. And that was a very celebratory time. It was an exciting time for vineyard owners. It was somewhat of an exciting time just for workers because they're going to have work. A lot of work to be had during those times. Another thing about that, Israel is often in the Old Testament symbolically pictured as a vineyard. So, let's jump into it. 
Jesus has said this, many who are first will be last and the last first, and then he tells a story. Let's begin in Matthew chapter 20, first two verses. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And when he agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. Now the work day was a 12-hour work day. And the work day was divided into four three-hour segments. That's kind of the way it worked, all right? And this is the very beginning, okay? So you're talking about 6 a.m. The vineyard owner goes to the marketplace. He goes to find somebody to work. This was common. And also common is what they would get paid for that day. It was a denarius. It was a day's wage. What they based that on was the private, if you will, in the Roman army. You know, the lowest, the lowest position soldier in the Roman army would make a denarius. And that was the pay for the common worker in that time. So the vineyard owner goes to the marketplace. He finds some people to work. He agrees with them. You work for me today. You will get a denarius at the end of the day. They're like, sounds good to us. This is a good deal. We're working today. Let's go. So the workers will be glad to bring that day home with them to the family a full day's wage. That means they're going to eat for a couple days. That's a really good thing. So they head to the vineyard at, again, 6 a.m. Any of you go to work at 6 a.m.? Ooh, got a few of you. Some of you probably like it, don't you? Weird people. All right. So that's what's taking place here. They are happy to be working. And then let's read on. That's just the beginning of the story. Look at the next couple of verses, verses 3 and 4. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to those, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right I will give you. And so they went. So I've already told you the workday is divided into four three-hour segments. So that first part of the workday is gone. The, the vineyard owner, he looks around and he's like, okay, there's, I've hired some guys here, but it's obvious at this point there's too much work for just them. And we've got to get this done. I mean, this is a hectic time. It's a good time, but it's a hectic time. The vineyard owner is starting to feel the pinch a little bit, so he goes back to the marketplace. He finds some more workers. Again, this is about 9 o'clock in the morning, 9 a.m., be in our work day. And he says to them, you go and work in my vineyard. And do you notice what he says? He doesn't say a denarius. Does you see anything in those traverses about a denarius? He says, I will pay you what is right. Now, what's part of our definition of fair? Right. I will pay you what is fair. I will pay you what is right. And I'll tell you, these guys, no hesitation. I mean, they've been sitting for three hours thinking, we missed the boat. Okay? So when the guy comes to hire him, he could say, I'm paying you very, very little. They're probably still going to go because they're going to take something home with them that way. So they go, they go straight to the vineyard. So let's continue on. Verse 5. And he went, about, he went out about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, and he did the same thing. As I told you, the workday divided into these hourly groups here. The, the, the vineyard owner, I promise you, he's been there at the vineyard, and he's like, these guys are, I mean, they're working hard, but they're not getting it done. i got to get this done. So he goes back to the marketplace. He goes back there at noon. He goes back there at 3 p.m. and makes the exact same arrangement. There are those who are still standing there. They don't have a job yet. He says, go to my vineyard, and I will pay you what is right. Does it at 12? He does it at 3 and they go to work. They're not going to turn it down. 
Now, up to this point in this parable, in this story, everything would sound somewhat common. What comes next is very much out of the ordinary. There's not too many people that get hired after 3 o'clock. It just doesn't happen that way. But he goes back. This vineyarder, he's getting desperate. The sun is beginning to sink. The work still is not done. And what comes next seems to be an obvious exaggeration. And Jesus would do that in his parables at times, make a big exaggeration to make a point. And this might be an exaggeration, but it will paint a very powerful picture before Jesus is done with this story. So look at verses 6 and 7. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day long? And they said to him, Because no one's hired us. And he said to them, You too go into the vineyard. Now if you've been doing the math in your mind, you will come to the point, This is 5 o'clock. This is 5 p.m. The work day ends at 6 p.m. We got an hour left here. This is like shutdown time. I know there's those of you who work on a workday schedule. How much work gets done in the last hour, typically? All right, on Friday? <laughs> yeah. All right. It's 5 o'clock. He goes back. He's desperate. He needs some more work. This is not a normal hiring time for obvious reasons. And keep in mind, it says that these guys have been standing idle at the marketplace. Guys, this doesn't mean that they're, they're just lazy. I mean, they haven't been hired. What are they going to do? Are they just going to go home? If you were a subsistence worker and your family depended upon you, how eager would you be to go home that evening and say, nobody hired me? We got anything left in the cabinet? Because I couldn't bring anything home. I mean, would you be eager to go home? So they stay there in the marketplace. And the great thing is, it's, it's, it turns out it was a good thing they stuck around after being overlooked multiple times. We don't know what these, I mean, maybe there's a reason why they didn't get picked. But they stayed. And then something crazy happens. The vineyard owner shows up. There is nothing said. Do you see anything in those verses about payment? He just says, what are you doing? He said, well, nobody's hired us yet. I don't see anything about, I'll pay you what is right. I don't see anything like this. He says, okay, go to my vineyard. Not much time left, but go to my vineyard and go to work. You know, anything is better than nothing. Going home with at least a little something in your hand is better than going with nothing. So they go to the vineyard. And before we move on any further, I want to paint a little bit of a modern day parable in your mind. Put yourself in these shoes, all right? You work in production. You can picture that however you want to picture it in your mind. An assembly line, I don't know. But you work in a production type of job. Your work day begins at 6 a.m. It ends at 5 p.m. At, at, at 3.30, high school workers come in and assist with the cleanup and help with the daily shutdown. 3.30, they show up. Payday arrives. And you just happen to glance over the shoulder of one of these high school kiddos and you see that their paycheck is equivalent with yours. Hold that thought for a moment. All right, back to verses 8 and 9. Payday. 
When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. When those hired at the 11th hour came, each one of them received a what? A denarius. It's time to pay up. And, and the vineyard owner tells his foreman, start with the last ones you came in first. Start with them, pay them first. And they're probably coming up and they're expecting a pandion. Now, I didn't even know what a pandion was until I did some study for this this week. A pandion was a Roman coin worth, guess what? One-twelfth of a denarius. How much did these guys work? They worked one-twelfth of the workday of others. So they were probably coming expecting something quite small in return for their work. And what do they get? A full day's wage. A denarius. Now before we focus on the other people who are going to come to the pay line here in just a moment, let's focus on these guys just for a second. Do you imagine being in their shoes? This is the difference for their families of eating and not eating for a while here. And I'm guessing that there is not only some shock, but there's some heartfelt thank yous to that vineyard owner of like, wow, I mean, thank you. I'll be here bright and early tomorrow morning if you need, if you need somebody else to work. Because probably in the back of even their minds, they're thinking, well, goodness, we got a denarius. What's going to be for the others who've been working all day long? Let's see what happens. Beginning with verse 10. When those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, The last men you have worked, they only worked for one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. Let me tell you guys, they're lined up getting ready to get paid and they see that those guys who only worked one hour getting paid to denarius, I'm betting you at the back of that line there's some, there's some calculating going on. It's like, okay, they got a denarius for working one hour, one-twelfth of the time that I worked. If I get paid accordingly, wow. This is like almost two weeks' pay. I mean, you can just, you, you know that the excitement is building up within them. This is a good guy here, man. This guy must have a lot of money or something, and he's a generous guy. This is really, really good stuff. And as they make their way to the front of the line, it becomes clear that those who worked nine hours, those who worked six, they're all getting paid the exact same. So you make your way to the payment foreman, what would your reaction be? What would your reaction be when you looked at that high school kid's paycheck over his shoulder and see it's equal to your paycheck? And all they've been doing for two weeks is helping shut the place down after they got done with school. What is your reaction going to be? You know, this is a quote, and you can look it up. I don't know who said it, and sometimes quotes are said so much, nobody even knows what they, who they originated with. It just becomes common knowledge, all right? And this is it. Nothing seems quite as unequal as equal treatment of unequals. Did you get that? Maybe I ought to say, I should have probably put that up on the, on the screen. Sorry about that. Okay, I'm going to say it again for you. Nothing seems quite as unequal as equal treatment of unequals. It depends on which side of the arrangement you're on. 
of whether or not that seems unequal. So our guys at the end of the line, they voiced their concerns. They voiced their criticism. They voiced their complaints. Three C's, all right? And this is what they say. Or I should say, we've heard what they said. This is what is said to them in return. The landowner defends himself. But the vineyard owner, he answered and said to them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give to this last man the same as you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? First of all, this term friend isn't what you're thinking of as friend. This was not a term of endearment. This is the same term that Jesus used when he told Judas to go and carry out what he's going to do in betraying him. He calls him friend. It's a distancing term. The vineyard owner says to him, friend, what, what, are, you, what are you talking about here? You have received what we agreed for you to receive. Did we not make that arrangement this morning? Have I held anything back from you? Is, is, is seeing someone given an unearned gift painful for you? Because that's all I've done. And that last part of verse 15, it says, Or is your eye envious because I am generous? If you get to the very literal literal phrase of what is stated in the Greek is this, is your eye evil because, my eye, because I am good? Is your eye evil because I am good? So Jesus tells his story and then he immediately restates this truth in verse 16. So the last shall be first, and the first last. Let me tell you something about Jesus' opposition. The opposition that would be in the forefront of getting him on a cross a very short period of time from when Jesus told this story. Jesus' opposition had a big problem with him for several reasons. But very near the top of that list was this. And it was a criticism. It was an accusation. And this is what they say. That guy's a friend of sinners. He's a friend of sinners. And by sinners, we're not just talking about everyday sinners here. We're talking about sinners. Like, talking about bad people here. And this is, he not only accepted them which no true rabbi would ever do, because Jesus was a teacher, he was a rabbi, he collected those followers around him, that's what rabbis did. And they're like, no real rabbi would ever collect this little collection that you got. It's not only that Jesus accepted these sinners, it's like he actually seemed to prefer their company over the company of the righteous. You see, that's why one of the reasons why this saying of Jesus was so hard for some people of his day. Because they could not get it through their brains that rotten people deserve God's compassion. They couldn't get it through their minds. And here's the question 
church, is this still a hard saying for us? Jesus made a statement to his disciples very early in his ministry. The statement was something like this. He just got through talking about one of the lows of society. The person he talked to was a Samaritan. Jews didn't talk to Samaritans. wasn't any Samaritan. It was a Samaritan woman. Jewish men definitely didn't talk to Samaritan women. And it wasn't just any Samaritan woman. It was a woman who was an adulteress. Had husband after husband after husband. And the guy that she was with now wasn't even her husband. And that's who Jesus chose to have one of his very first conversations about who he was. Who he really was. The Christ. The Messiah. And this woman leaves Jesus' presence from the well of Jacob. And she goes back to the Samaritan village, and she goes back there and tells everybody, this guy told me everything I ever did. Let me tell you, that's the kind of woman that you wanted to know everything because this is going to be quite a story (laughs) because she was a wild gal, all right? And Jesus stayed in that Samaritan village for several days and continued to preach the message of his kingdom. But before they went into that town, do you know what he said to his followers, to his disciples? They come, they'd gone to town to get something to eat, and they brought him back some food. And he said, oh, I've already eaten, I'm not hungry. Like, well, where'd you get some food? I don't see any, there's not a McDonald's out here by this well. I mean, I looked for one. There's no food here, okay? And Jesus says, my food is to do the will of my Father. And they're still a little bewildered, like, Okay, but we brought you a cheeseburger, okay? I mean, do you want it or do you not? And Jesus looks at him and he says, just look around you. Just look around you, boys. Because most of his disciples were pretty young. He said, the fields are white for harvest. Pray to God that he will send more workers into his harvest field for the harvest. And here's the question, folks. That statement goes on to us. The fields are still white for the harvest. What he means by that is this. There are people ready to follow Jesus. They just need somebody to tell them about Jesus. And when we view the fields of harvest, where do our eyes tend to venture? Who are the people in the back of your mind who you're thinking about? This is is somebody I need to share the gospel with. Is this somebody who looks, acts, thinks has the same hobbies as you, look, you know? Are they good people? You know some of the hardest people to win to Jesus Christ? Good people. Good people like, I'm good, I'm going to heaven, I'm a good guy. That woman at that well speaking with Jesus had no misconceptions in her mind about who she was. She knew she was rotten. And yet, the Son of God chose her to speak the message. One of the very first times announcing, I'm the one. It wasn't some Pharisee in the Sanhedrin, some high and mighty high priest. It was a Samaritan adulteress.
What are we missing sometimes, folks, when it comes to viewing this world with the eyes of Jesus? Jesus' closest supporters and followers included tax collectors. Those are those traitors, all right? Included them. We would not like tax collectors today. I promise you. We wouldn't like them. And some of his closest followers and supporters included tax collectors, former prostitutes, even hotheads with violent rebel tendencies, Simon the Zealot. You see, the workers in that vineyard wanted equality. They say, we bore the work of the day all day long. We worked in the scorching heat. And you've taken these people who didn't work hardly at all and you made them equal to us. That isn't right. Pay us in the same way that you paid them. Vineyard's like, that's exactly what I did. No, you don't get it. You know that scorching heat thing? I looked in my Bible, and this was crazy to me, because I was looking at the, the, the references. You know, your Bible might do the same thing. There are parallel passages in the Bible, we call them. Like, passages in the Bible use the same phrase, same words. Maybe this scenario is talked about somewhere else, so they'll put that in the footnotes beside. Mine's kind of right down the middle of the page. And I saw when I underlined Jonah. I was like, what in the world does Jonah, the prophet Jonah, have to do with the vineyard and guys not getting paid what they thought they should get paid? What is that? I got to looking closer at it. You know what the reference is? Scorching heat. You remember a little bit about Jonah? I'll make it really, really quick. He was a powerful prophet. God told him to go to Nineveh and tell him to repent. He didn't want to do it, not because Jonah was scared of the Ninevites. They were the, uh, the capital of Assyria, world power at the time, and they were rotten people. They were rotten people, evil, cruel. He didn't want to go because he hated them. That's why he didn't want to go. So he decides to run the other direction. You remember what happened? God changed his plans with a really big fish. Right. Jonah goes and he preaches. You know what his, you know what his sermon was? In a few days, God's going to kill you. And then the music played and the sermon was over. That was the sermon, all right? He went throughout through the entire city, which is a big city, ancient wonder of the world, all right, Nineveh. And he, he, he preaches this same message. A few days, God's going to kill you. In a few days, God's going to kill you. And he, he doesn't even say repent. That's all he says. And when he gets done with his preaching, you know what he does? He goes up on the hill and he's like, time to watch the show. I'm ready for the fire and brimstone, Lord. Bring it on him. Let's sodom these people, okay? You bring it out of the, bring it out of heaven and you destroy this place. So he goes up to watch the show and it's hot. It's hot. Well, this plant grows up overnight, overnight, so you know this isn't natural, and gives him some shade. And he's, ra- he's waiting for the fireworks, okay? Guess what? The fireworks don't come because the entire city repented. And Jonah, not only does the city repent, that little plant that grew over his head gave it some shade, a big old worm came and ate it. <laughs> and he's sitting in what? The scorching heat. And he complains to God. And he says, God, this is why I didn't want to come here. Because I know you are a compassionate God. And 
I didn't want to see this city saved. Can you think of a more ungodlike thing to say? Those workers in the vineyard wanted equality. What about us? Are there some people that just aren't worthy of the message of Jesus Christ? There's some people that are just too opposed to the way I think to ever believe what I believe about Jesus. They could never believe it. I wasn't even point even trying. Their views are so backwards, so mixed up. They're sitting there trying to tell people what's wrong is right and what's right is wrong. They're out there and there's, there's no hope for them. And if we are being completely honest... Maybe we're a little happy about that. Because we want equality, right? Is that what we want from God? He's a just God, and I want to see him punish those people who deserve it. Do we really desire justice from God? Or do we desire grace? What about when God deals with us? Do we desire justice? Or do we desire grace? When I stumble and fall on my face, and I, according, a little bit of a paraphrase, but by my failure, according to the author of Hebrews, do I, I put Jesus on that cross all over again? Because I don't withstand temptation? Do I desire justice? Or do I desire God's patience and God's grace? T.W. Manson, he's the guy that reading through some of his commentary work that I found out about that Pondion I was telling you about, that little Roman coin. I'll tell you what, you type in ancient Roman coin on the internet, you know you can go to eBay and buy ancient Roman coins? It's crazy. I don't know how many of them are actually real ancient Roman coins. I'd be a little careful about that. Don't go to, don't go to eBay right now, all right? But there, there are tons of them, different, different worth of money and all of this thing. And this Pondion is one-twelfth of a denarius. And the point that, that T.W. Manson said, he said, thank God himself that there's no such thing as one-twelfth of God's grace. God gives us the full shot, the full dose why? Because his son died for us. No other reason. And we need to be very careful about being high and mighty. Because we think we are up here in society and there are others who are down here. Because in God's view, we're all down here. And it's his grace alone. By and through the blood of Jesus Christ that makes us worthy of being in God's presence for eternity. 
And there are people in our lives, folks, that we think are beyond God's grip. And it's not our place to make that determination. As we come to our time of communion today, we need to be thinking very seriously, first of all, about gratitude. About the fact that we've been given the eternal denarius. <laughs> we've been given a home that we cannot even imagine, and our Savior is preparing it for us as I speak. And the only reason we're worthy to share in that home with Him is because our God's love is that big. But also in this time of communion, I think there are some of us, now maybe not all, and I hope not all, but I know that there's some of us in this room who need our viewpoints rearranged and come to the understanding of it's not up to me to decide who deserves God's grace. And I need to be telling people of God's love and God's justice. Just like his son did when he was here. And his followers did after he was gone. 